Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. We're in our series in the book of Philippians, learning how to be a great people in a great church, serving a great God. And in your bulletins, if you don't mind looking there, you'll see, instead of our memory verse, I want you to tear out that pray for grace, and let me explain what that means. <clears throat> What I'd like you to do is take this and put it you know, on the dashboard of your car or maybe a mirror, something you're looking at regularly, and I want you to pray for grace for at least the month of February. And let me tell you why. Because I think I might have mentioned before that, that this book called Philippians in the New Testament is the book that is most Christ-centered in all the epistles, actually in the Bible, for that matter, as far as dense, you know, pound for pound. And there's 104 verses, 51 of those verses name Jesus. They just use the name of Jesus. And now we're starting to look in the purpose of the book. The introductions are over, and we're going to look at how to live, how to live the, the uncommon life, the uncommon faith. And it's going to be Jesus first, Jesus in the middle, and Jesus at the end. And, and friends, there's a spiritual world out there. And I, I know some of you entertain that thought. You know, some of us do that, some of us believe that to be true, and then, and then a few people actually comprehend the depth and the certitude of that. There, there's, there's more real in the spiritual world that we can't see than maybe even in the physical world where we get to enjoy our senses. And the reason I mention that is because when we talk about <clears throat> uh, the, the chapters to come, and especially some verses, we're going we're gonna to find ourselves in the single most densely Christ-exalting passage of Scripture ever written. And I want you to be prepared. I want you to help us. You're serving your church, right? Praying for us to, to get us prepared for that, but also to be aware that there's a war going on. This passage that's so densely exalting Christ, it is humiliating to the demons and the devil. And, and, and I'm, just, I'm just saying you, you might find yourself in the weeks to come arguing about misunderstandings. You said, what? I didn't even close, say close to that. Wait, wait, wait. We're praying for grace, right? You might be finding like unusual reasons why not to come to church when we start talking about these passages together about Jesus the Christ. When you get here, you might find yourself unusually distracted. I'm saying that and there might be more to that. What I'm saying is you need to pray for grace. You need to pray for your family to be aware and to be alert and to be protected. Would, would you do that for your friends, your, you know, the brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's do that together. Let's look at the power of these words in weeks to come. And, and let's, let's enjoy what can happen when our spiritual lives are invigorated by these truths. Today we're looking at the, the heart of the matter and the purpose of the book. We're going to look at just a few verses at the end of chapter 1. We'll look at chapter 2 in, as it applies next week. But this is why Paul wrote this book. He loves this church. And they're, they're, they're not in a, in a state of division, but they are in a state of infighting. There's a selfish ambition. There's you know, vanity going on here. And they're sniping at each other. And they're arguing and complaining. And, you know, that's great if it's a soccer team, but it's at the expense of the truth of the gospel here about the, the glory of Jesus Christ and what he's done and the fact that he's Lord of the universe. And so, and so, and so their message is getting contaminated by their, by their infighting and their lifestyle. 
Okay, so that's what we're going to start looking at and how to, how to deal with that. Now, this passage especially has this kind of a military feel to it. And I think it's, some of it has to do with uh, that Philippi is a military town. They, they were <clears throat> presented, or they were declared a colony by Caesar Augustus, which gave them special privileges. I'll show you a little bit about that in, in a minute. But um, th- this military v- vocabulary and feel that you'll hear today is not just because Philippi is is maybe like Annapolis, Maryland, but it is because the spiritual, one aspect of the spiritual world is, is battle, is war. Um, it, it's, it's not fun and games, it's not a playground. It's certainly one example in the Bible is that we're a family and we like that, the, the idea of community and sometimes we can find ourselves that there's a, a, a friend in Christ that's closer than a brother. It's... Uh, the, the spiritual life talks about Christian living is, is servanthood. It's, he is our great king, and there's a lot of metaphors where we, just, we, get, we get to serve him. We get to be part of his staff, right? But there's also plenty of passages that tell us outright that there's a war going on, and we're in combat, and we are soldiers, and we are to defend what is true and right and real. And, and so some of you, I know, come because you want a better life and maybe closer relationships or, or moral boundaries, and that's good. But I want you to know that this is, it's, this is the truth. And, you know, don't be like, what was the name of that show? Uh, Private Benjamin. You remember there was years ago, okay, there was a movie and then a TV show where this cute little debutante, you know, 105-pound blonde girl gets tired of all her rich and fame uh, shallowness, and she, she thinks she's going on holiday, and she joins the army. Right, naively. Uh, one of the opening gags is when she's going through the line where they're giving her her fatigues, and she says, "Is this the only color that comes in? It doesn't doesn't make me look good." I hope you didn't join the Christian faith as you know. Private Benjamin is is the point here because Paul is coming in here and he's going to say, "Look, look. Whatever happens, doesn't it sound like a military? Whatever happens out there, show yourself to be a good soldier." That's what we're going to, that's the theme today. Whatever happens out there, show yourself to be a good soldier. Now, how, he's going to show how to do that. And it's interesting, you know, the first week of this year when we started, we talked about this church and how we're maybe a little different in that our, our team values and our coaching style is not one that we present the big, hairy, audacious goal, right? And, and that sort of thing. But rather, we're one that coaches what we can control. The, the people. And so we, we coach people over players. Well, it's, what happened after that first lesson was uh, one of our members, it's been in, in the service for 27 years in the Army and leadership development said, that's how we train. We don't go for the big, hairy, audacious goal because those, that's out of our control. What our, our outline is pretty simple. It's called Be No Do. Be No Do. As a matter of fact, Peter Drucker wrote a book called Be No Do, The Army's Way of Leadership. And it's simply put, because they can control that. They can control the person, maybe not the plan, right? The first rule of, of military strategy is the strategy won't work. And so you go to plan B or C. But what they can plan is this. They can work on the character of a person. And they, and they in, in develop in him loyalty and personal courage and, and faithfulness and integrity, respect, those sorts of values. Then maybe they can give them things that can blow things up, right? Then they talk about knowing, tactical knowledge, interpersonal knowledge, right? And, and tactical skills. Then it's 
the ability to do that, be no do. That's combining those first two and the ability to have the courage to make those decisions and, and bring that all together. The point is, that is precisely what's happening in this book. He says, regardless of what happens, right, just show yourself to be a good soldier here. We're going we're to focus on be, know, and do. And, and Paul wants us to, for the, for the sake of our soul, no matter what happens, you have to be this type of person. And, and you can see uh, in verse 27, that's our first sentence we're going to look at together. We'll chop it up because it's so full. He says, look, whatever happens, that's military, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then, whether I come to see you or, or hear about you in my presence. So let's just kind of break this up. That's, that phrase, conduct yourselves in a manner, one word in the Greek, he's playing to their Philippian pride. It, the, the sentence really says, um, live like a citizen. Live like a citizen of Philippi. You guys, Caesar Augustus called you a colony. You, you have your own autonomous government. You don't even have to pay taxes. It's like you're part of Italy. Okay, act like that. He says, you love telling people and acting like you're from Philippi. He says this, no, no, no. Take that pride, same sort of value. While you're in Philippi, act like you're a citizen of heaven. Live in a manner worthy of your ultimate citizenship. Live in a manner, what he's saying is show the world that you're real, that you're the real deal. Show them, live in a way that shows that you have character, the be and the know and the do. See and make sure that happens. Whether I'm absent from you or I'm there. See, he's saying your reputation. I want to hear about you before I get there. I want the world kind of to talk about, let's say, let's just project on us, right? Let's let the world talk about grace. Whether I ever come into that church or not, right, that you live, a man, live in a manner worthy of your heavenly citizenship. That's what he's talking about. You're holding a true doctrine. You're living consistently within that doctrine. And, and then he gonna, he's going to say, here's, what, here's four things that show you what the real deal looks like. The next, from 27 and a half, all the way to the end of the chapter, he's going to say, this is what a real soldier of heaven looks like. Yeah. Well, first thing he talks about is standing firm in unity. I, no, I want to hear this about you. I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together with one another for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm, steadfast, unflinching courage, it means. You've refused to leave your position in the battle fray. You know what he's telling them? Hold your ground. Stand, hold the line. And he says, hold your line together. You all have to hold this together. Stand firm for the gospel. What, is that, what he's referring to, I think, is what we would call orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy is a church word that means the, the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. Okay. Sometimes they're called the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Okay. And he's saying, he's saying this, stand your ground here. Okay. Don't give up on these, what we call it grace, convictions. Maybe a scattered, deep belief. Don't give up on these things. But here's the thing. What we call convictions, we didn't write those. Okay. We, we didn't meet right, somewhere and come up with those. I mean, for, this, for that matter... Paul didn't come up with these beliefs for you. He, Moses didn't. The Old Testament, all these things, orthodoxy, these things are from God. They are, they are from the outside, 
brought into us, revealed, good word, revealed to us by God, revelation, word revelation, right? And so Moses didn't come up with this orthodoxy. He just took notes, okay? And we're to hold to that. Uh, the, the, the Gospels are just men that recorded what truly happened. Paul didn't come up with doctrine. He just took notes. He, just, he was the one who wrote it down. And these, these doctrines, the, the orthodoxy, you want to keep them to a minimum, but they are complete, right? And they're sufficient for all that we need in our faith. That's what we're holding to. Historically, they're complete. They're sufficient. There's a lot that's not in the Bible that's true. Like not everything, in the, not everything in the, that's true is in the Bible, but everything in the Bible is true. Historically speaking, it starts with in the beginning and it ends with come Lord Jesus. Amen. And all of that history in there is the history of how God works in human lives so that he might reveal himself to us. It's complete. It's sufficient. And with, uh, with salvation, there's nothing else that needs to be added that the Bible hasn't already spoken to. It has always been and it always will be that you are transformed by God's grace. It is never by works. It is always by a gift. Your faith in that gift. It's complete. It's sufficient for that. It's sufficient for morality. There's not a, I mean, I know the Bible's old, but there's not an ethical dilemma that you will ever endure that doesn't have an answer to it. It's found in the Bible. And, and Paul is saying this, you know, okay, circle around this value that's true, okay, stand firm to this, that this book of Revelation is different in kind, not in degree, it is a, it's an entirely different way of receiving revelation. It is not like what we might know about God in the writings of church fathers or church leaders. It is not like what we might know that we could find in church tradition. It is different completely in kind. And he's saying you want to hold to that. And you don't want to get kicked around. You need to grow up. One passage, Paul, same writer says this. He says, look, you're no longer to be like children tossed here and there with waves and carried about by the winds of various doctrines. You're supposed to grow up in all aspects of Christ. Stand firm. Be a soldier. Don't get carried away that way. At, at this, here's a great way to apply this to this church. You... you you individually need to understand what you believe. Okay, not, by the way, not what your parents believed, not your culture and growing up, not what you want to be true, not what you feel is true. You need to find out what is true. Then you go to a church that has those same right values. You think through this and you go to that church and guess what you do? You stand firm in unity with those other people of that church. Okay. Do, not, do not get caught in the trivia. Stand firm. Hold the ground. Hold the line. That's the first sign of a real soldier. Second one is that you do this, you strive together in unity. Same sentence. I'll look at it again. We'll emphasize a different point. I will know that you stand, so he wants to know that you'll stand firm in uh, one spirit, striving together as one. For in the faith of the gospel, striving together as one. Striving together. Bible isn't just a series of doctrinal beliefs, right? It's we go out there. At grace, one of our values, right? Major values, we're committed to serve. And in our service, uh, another value. 
at Grace, every believer is a minister. And so this is, is base camp, and then we break camp, and we go out there, and we tell and serve and care for the world around us. And, and when we do that, he says, I want you to strive together because it's work. I want you to strive together as one, working together as one, because that's the only way it does work for a number of reasons. So, so if it's on this campus, for example, it, whether you're helping people find a parking spot, you should strive together as parking people, right? No infighting. If, all the way to the stage here, if you're working in the band, it's, you know, some gyms will say this, leave your ego at the door. It's, it's required. It's, it's, it's not about you. It's about striving together. Everything on this campus, we need to work as teams, striving together as one. And so it's, uh, if you can imagine, especially outside our doors here, we're, we're, we're on a life-saving team, and we're, we're on these rowboats, open water rescue, where it's difficult, and we have to row. <laughs> the oars have to go in together. And so when you're working in your neighborhood, you should say, hey, let's get together with other followers of Jesus Christ. Let's minimize what we can disagree on. Let's like, throw that over there. Let's agree on the things that we can, right, and stand firm to those. And then in unity, in unity, let's get this done. Here's why. Because the message can be lost in infighting. And that, that's, the message can be lost in the infighting. And listen, you can, you can, fly, you can fly a dozen believers anywhere in the world. It doesn't matter the language they speak. When they land there, they will draw attention to themselves because of their unity, or they will draw attention to themselves because of their disunity. And that's why Jesus prayed for us. One of the last things he did while his feet were on this soil, he said, Dear Father, I pray that you would make them one with each other as you and I are one and that the world would see this and they would know their Christians by their love for and their service and their love for one another. You have to work together to get a great thing done, to get this skill. If you've been in the military, you know there's a great amount of fun in teasing the various branches of the military. But if they don't work together, men and women die. And I could tell you stories where they didn't work together because they were competitive, but most of the victories that we have are because they chose to work together for something greater than their own branch. Okay, so the point is, is we, we need to strive together. At, at Grace, like no one should do two jobs until everybody does one job because we're doing this together. Hold the line. Stand firm as one. The next thing is strive together. The third attribute of a real, the real deal is to be courageous. Verse 28 says, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to those who will be destroyed, but also those that will be saved, and that by God. Don't be frightened or don't be afraid in any way by those who oppose you. You're going to have to have courage. Why is that? Orthodoxy. Orthodox, the real belief in the doctrine of salvation it's uh, the gospel uh, literally means good news, but it doesn't start off that way. It starts off with re very bad news, and this is where you need courage because the, there's really two points to the gospel message. The first point is there is nothing good within 
a human soul. There is none righteous. There's not even one. The things, the good things you do, you do for the wrong reasons. So there's no real moral actions you do. There's no more real moral motives. In other words, the very nature of who you are could not endure an audience because of the holiness of God and the lack of that that you have. And that's a very difficult thing to communicate. The, the, the second point, okay, is that Jesus paid it all. He did everything. It was his life. It, it was his death. It was his resurrection. It has to be. Why? Because, well, see, point one, you, you, you bring nothing to this relationship with God except your own sin. And so Paul's saying you're going to have to call it courage because, because people don't, they want to say, no, I, you know, I'm wise. I, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. And you can't give on point one because then point two doesn't matter. I mean, you can learn a lot from our friends uh, in, our, in the 12-step programs where the first step is this thing is bigger than you. Part two is great, but the, part two is it's not bigger than God. You know, but part one is it's bigger than you. And, and if they hold that to be true, there's a lot of people that come in and they just don't get that. And they're courageous. The people in leadership will be courageous. They say, you're, you know what, we'll let you come. But listen, you don't, you're not there. You think this is rock bottom. It's a long way down from here. And when you get there, then the other steps will help you. But it takes courage. If, if, people, if people say, you're not, if people don't think they're that bad, they don't think God's that mad. And then their salvation is, is well, it's not true. It's not true. It's, it's not real. And so he's saying, stand there, hang in there, hold on to that, be courageous, stand firm, right, hold your ground. He's saying, strive together, be courageous, and then finally, all the while you're suffering, (laughs) I bet you wish you came to a different church today. Look, while you're suffering, verse 29, all the good news, look what happens here. Verse 29, for it has been granted, that word is graced, for it has been graced to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also you get to suffer for him since for you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now hearing that I still have, right? So that word, it means gift. That suffering is a gift from God. And it's pretty easy to go straight to the idea that sure, it's usually through suffering that we're refined. That's where the edges are chipped off. You know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? Even Nietzsche figured that out. But I want to give you three reasons why it's a, it's a gift from God that you would suffer. This is God's gift to us that we get to suffer for him. We get to suffer with him. And listen, if we can, if we can break away from our prime directive, right, the default, it's American, but it's, also, it's been all the way back to the Greeks, that the prime directive in life, let's just pretend it is not that we pursue pleasure and avoid pain. Okay, let's just let's put that over here for a second and just say, what if suffering for Christ is actually a gift from God? Here's three reasons why it's a gift. You'll thank him. One is it connects you with Christ in a very special way. It connects you with Christ in a special way. There's two experiences that we have that where heaven and earth actually touch. Okay. And, and Philippians talks about both of those. 
The first one, we, want, we love that one. The first one is joy. Joy is when heaven touches earth. It is, it is the, the, that experience that we have that it's beyond real definitions because it transcends circumstances, and it, it, we have, uh, I don't want to call it an emotion or a feeling, but it's just, it's, it's this event that causes us to realize that we are not just mammals, there's a difference in man, and there's a difference that it makes, and we are made in heaven for heaven. And so sometimes in our lives, when sometimes even the things are the worst ever, we have an experience of joy that makes us understand that we're transcendent. And you can read authors like uh, uh, G.K. Chesterton and George MacDonald and C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers. These people have all said, told you, told you you have a soul because of joy. So joy is, is that thing, that experience where we, we get to say, you know, wait, I can relate to Jesus in heaven because I had this moment of joy. That's one place. The other place where heaven and earth touch is suffering. Suffering is when earth touches heaven. Suffering is that thing that we have in common with Jesus where God became man and when God became man, he came to be with us, but to suffer with us. And, 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 and so uh, we can say with the Father, the Father says, boy, what you're going through, I can understand. What Jesus says, what you're going through, I can understand. I've done everything you've done except sin. And so whatever your experience might be, loneliness or sorrow or betrayal, just look through just the Passion Week of Jesus Christ, and you can say, Jesus can say to you, Wow, I understand what it's like to be you. This is the overlap, this suffering. And so we get, we get this experience of suffering in the, quiet, in the quiet parts of our soul. When we're in the experience of suffering, we can we maybe hear the, even the voice of God that says, I know, I know, I've been there. I've experienced this. We have more in common now than we did before. The second reason the gift is, suffering is a gift from God is because it, it, it helps validate, kind of prove when we're in doubts that we are the real deal. It, it helps show that we are in it for, for real. That, because there's a, when there's a cost to commitment and you pay it, you, you're validated by that. If you ever want to know the difference between like a pretend Christian and, you know, a real deal, all you have to do is just like turn up the heat a little bit. Just see what happens. Because, I mean, in, a lot of times when it comes to either sacrificial giving or some kind of persecution, they flee the ship, and the real guys are staying there. I won't leave. And that's why Jesus talks about, uh, he's defining what, what faith is like. He uses an analogy uh, as, as plants in different types of soil. And he says, you know, there's this one soil that represents a type of faith that's not real faith, and that's a person that's in shallow soil, like in Austin, very little topsoil, and these things sprout up, and they're awesome, and look, they're alive, and then the sun comes out and scorches them and, and heats them up. That's what he calls persecution, and he says, and then it, it kills them off. It wasn't real. As soon as it costs something, they're gone. And so the history of, listen, the history of Christianity is the history of persecution, And, and Paul's saying, look, it is a gift from God to be persecuted and to endure that because 
because it validates. Today, I mean, we're, you don't get physically persecuted in our country, but there's tens of thousands of people that are suffering physically, emotionally, and spiritually around the world because they love Jesus Christ. Hey, right here. They were given this gift of suffering. The third reason that uh, this is a gift from God to suffer is because we get to connect with other sufferers. This is another kind of a strange thing. It's hard to explain, but when two people have suffered similar things together, they are connected in ways they can't be otherwise. If, if, if it weren't for the gift of suffering, friends, we would live most of our lives being afraid of the taste of our own blood, and then one day we would wake up, usually too late, and realize that we have never really lived. And, and, and suffering comes along and says, you know what? <laughs> Let's, that's the punch. That's the punch in the cheek that says, how's that taste? alive. It tastes, like, it tastes like living. Look, if you don't, if you, if you don't know if, what this is like, I'll, I'll put you to this dare, you know, because again, we're not in, at this point incarcerating people for loving Christ fully. Here, watch, just do this. If you have a relationship, if your spiritual relationship is, is uh, in your mind, you know, part of a balanced life, I'm telling you, don't make it that. Make it your whole life. Make it everything. If you think it's the seasoning, you know, it's not. It's the meal. And you make Jesus everything in your life, beginning in the middle and the end, and just follow the simple outline that's found in almost every book of the Bible, and it goes like this. Stop doing bad and start doing good. I'm, I'm, honestly, it's, it's, you can find it almost everywhere. Stop doing bad. Anything, you make a list of the things, right, that turn your soul hard, dark, you know, calloused towards spiritual things, stop doing those. Then, not, don't end there, then start doing whatever you must do to, to turn your heart towards spiritual things. You know, the Bible and prayer and reading and, and seeking help and advice from other people, and you do that, okay? Like in a, in a sentence in the Bible, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of your life. Just do that. And some of you, won't have your girlfriend by next Saturday because now you've gone too far. Some of you would have lifetime friends, and they'll, they'll shame you and say, what, did you find Jesus? And you say, yes, I did. So you're going to be one of those Jesus freaks people? If that's the way you have to call me, I mean, we could preserve this friendship, but if it's up to you. you some of you couldn't keep your jobs because of the morality involved. You serve the king of glory. You serve him like a faithful soldier where you'd rather die than disobey. And you will be suffering. And when you're lying in your bed and you're lonely or feeling the shame or unemployed, if you listen carefully you will hear that you are connected now with a band of brothers, the faithful few, the ones who have suffered, and you will say in a soulish depth that you haven't maybe spoken before, I thank God for this gift of suffering. It's a gift. And that's why Paul says, look, you are go I, I hope you're faithful in this suffering, this gift. So you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now you hear that I still have. And now you, that I still have. 
Remember the time I came to Philippi and they beat me with rods and a couple of other guys? Yeah, right. Wasn't that awesome? That was great. Yeah, we were all in this together. You get to share a connection with Christ. You get to prove that you're in it for the real thing, and you get to connect with other people. Here's what Paul's, here's the summary of what Paul's saying to us, okay? Here's what Paul wants grace to hear, this church to hear. He wants your reputation, whether it gets here or not. It's not likely he's going to get here. So if he hears about us, he wants to hear this, that you guys stood firm on the things that were true. Nothing more, nothing less. That you fought together, you strove together, you left all the stupid things, you know, behind for the sake of something greater than you as one, as a unit. You were courageous. You said things, did things, right? You went above where you thought you could be because you're on a team, right? The power of team. And then you suffered and you realized it was a gift of suffering. We want to share scars together in heaven, don't we? You know, veterans, they don't like talking to civilians about the things they've done and what they've endured uh, because we don't get it. You lock them in a, you know, veterans of foreign war building together and give them enough time, and next thing you know, they're taking off their shirts and pants. Yeah, this is where the shrapnel... Because they they did something. They, They did something that mattered, and they were a unit when they did it. The Battle of the Bulge. The most expensive 40 days in the history of the United States Army. December 16, 1944, January 25, 1945. Within the first few hours of the surprise attack blitzkrieg from the Nazis, the guys on the ground said they lost everything. Because, because of the, the fire, uh, they lost the chain of command and they felt like they were on their own. And then the blizzard came and so they lost air support and visibility. They lost it all. And so because of that, chaos ensued and then they had to go back to their training. They had to go back to be no do. They had to be soldiers and to know their tactics and they had to show it to be real. And here's what they had to do. They had to hold the line. They had to hold the line together. They had to stand and stand firm and struggle together. They had to be courageous together, and they had to suffer together. And they did. They were trapped in the forest. And the reason it all happened is because the Allied forces thought it would be okay to just set four divisions on the top of this hill in the, in the thick of the forest because the Nazis were on a retreat. But... They have a history, this is the third time in three wars, that they would send a counteroffensive right out after that. It was kind of a fake retreat. And so the four divisions were two brand-new greenhorn guys that have just got on the ground, and the other two divisions were battle-worn, broken men that went all the way back to Normandy. But they thought by putting them in the Arnes Forest that they'd be safe, but they weren't. The plan was from the Nazis to send 300,000 troops with armor as a wedge, and if they could split this, they could divide and conquer the Allied forces and then prolong the war for months or even better, come to you know, a, a treaty that would change all of Western Europe and they could fight another war on a different front. The job was to hold the line. The job was to fight. The job was to stand their ground. And they did. And they did. 
They did what they were trained to do. And then, you know, eventually, right, the third army took a hard turn, 90 degrees, and Patton and his armor division showed up, and they fought. And then finally, right, the, the clouds broke, and the skies were clear, and they got air support again. But friends, uh, in 40 days, the Americans lost over 100,000 troops, or 100,000 casualties. But I want you to hear that, that be, there's, there's something that happens to people when they're connected and they suffer and they live in courage and they stand their ground for something that's great, something's bigger than themselves. As you probably know, Patton died soon after the Second World War was over and it would be natural and it would it, probably a lot of people wanted to bury him in Arlington, Virginia, right, the big cemetery. He'd, he wanted nothing to do with that. In his will was a request that he would be buried in Europe in the Memorial Park with the Third Army at the Battle of the Bulge because he lived with these men and he fought with these men and he wanted to be buried with these men. That's what Paul's saying here. He's just saying, look, look, look. Look at the prophets of old. Look what they did. They were, they were insane for their walk with God and, and they held their ground and they, right, they strove together and they were courageous and they suffered well. Look at their resumes. Look at them filling the heavens. Look at the apostles. All but one died a martyr and, and that one that didn't, he wished he would have. Listen, to, look at the church history. Look at the people that have come before you that that held the line on doctrine. There were men and women that when they were burned at the stake, they would hold their hands out first so as to light their writing hand on fire, the one that they wanted to get to sign some paper that said they would no longer be a follower of the orthodox beliefs that are found in the Bible. He's saying that. He's just saying, look, look. He's saying, look, whatever you have to do, to get your whole heart, mind, and soul turned towards heaven and off of this rock, you do that. Because Jesus will greet you and he'll say, rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted because great is your reward in heaven. Do you want to learn how to be this real soldier? Next week, we'll find out. But right now, Let's get our hearts right for this, okay? Lord Jesus, we lift up our souls to you, and we, we pray with the inspiration of the saints before us that we could do what they did so well. We would hold and strive and live courageously and suffer well, that when we're persecuted, we would not turn away from Christ, we would not be embarrassed. We would, when we're persecuted, we would not turn on our brothers and sisters, that we would stay unified. Lord Jesus, I'd ask that your spirit would rattle around inside of our soul and tell us, are we in this for real? Are you King Jesus? And I'd ask, Lord, that we would find that when we sell everything and give everything for this thing, the kingdom of God, that we walk away filled with joy because we'll be greeted with a great reward in heaven. You are our King. You are the general. We serve you. Lord, let's be that church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.